folks, uh, I'm being told that we should begin, if everyone would take, hit the bell. Where is the bell? The bell's behind your, your computer. Ah, thank you. Well, welcome to the next session, uh, which I think is about collaborations. And uh, I'm going to make some general comments. Um, I'd, uh, and my comments are not necessarily directed uh, to people interested in higher education. I've always and will continue to be deeply interested in K-12 education, too. And, and uh, I think that um, uh, sometimes in our enthusiasm about our technologies and the, and the media that we're able to provide and many of the wondrous software inventions, we lose a sense of um, the urgency of the educational dilemmas of uh, people not only in the United States but around the world. Um, when I was working for um, uh, Fujitsu in, 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 of all places, Ireland, um, we used to go to a bar uh, called the Bleeding Horse, which was right next to the organization. And uh, uh, there's a tradition in Irish uh, culture that if you are uh, part of it, you probably know. People are fabulous storytellers, this tradition of storytelling. And uh, I heard this great story that I never forgot that I, I used to remind myself of what the world is really like and about every so often. Um, it's a story of one man coming into a bar and seeing an old friend, and the old friend is drinking, and he's just so upset. Uh, he, he's a nervous wreck. He can hardly function. And uh, his friend says, uh, what's wrong? What's wrong? He said, uh, I, I just started air traffic controller school, and uh, I'm six weeks into the program, and uh, I'm just so frightened I can't do this. He said, well, why, why? He said, do you realize you look at the screen and every blip on the screen, 200 lives. And uh, his friend said, oh, I can understand that. And he talked with him a while and left. And he came back about six months later to the same bar and he found his friend there. And he's just perfectly relaxed and having no problems whatsoever from appearances and his friend says oh I guess you must have dropped out of air traffic controller school you look really relaxed you don't have any problems anymore and he said oh no no he said I finished I graduated and I'm an air traffic controller he said but, but the blips the blips every blip 200 lives and he says oh no they're just blips <laughs> and um, I always use that story to uh, remind myself that uh, we, we often uh, use counters to represent uh, things in our lives and ciphers. And um, uh, we are, in fact, in a, uh, a world of uh, urgency that uh, is impressing itself on us at all times, not only in respect to education, but many, many other things. And um, I remember just in continuing in this vein, if you'll allow me to for a little while, uh, the uh, the um, it's the first time I went to Orlando to to speak at a technology conference and demonstrate these simulations we've been developing in another context. And uh, Orlando looked to me 
like a complete city of light. Uh, it seemed like everywhere you went, there was a kind of luminosity. I rented a car when I was there with my friends, and we started to drive. And there was actually a legitimate perimeter that if you passed that perimeter, you actually had no street lights. So that Orlando was really like two worlds. There was this one world of total luminosity. And then there was another world that lived in darkness. And if you might have guessed that that world that lived in darkness was actually a dark world, which was mostly inhabited by African-American people. And um, I think that there's a danger in the world that we work in that one of my graduate students who just finished his PhD, uh, I think, described and defined as notocentrism. That is that we get caught up in the luminosity of media and the luminosity of the Internet, and we forget about what he calls the paralogical worlds that exist that are outside of the system of light that represents the communication systems that we thrive in, live in, communicate in, and relate with him. His name is Ulysses Mejias. Um, and um, what, what excites me about that is it forces us out of our own context. Uh, the first meeting I went to this morning was in the Earth Institute. And uh, I was discussing with a young graduate student the fact that, um, that uh, she was, t I asked her what a dissertation was going to be about. And she said, my dissertation is going to be about electricity in Kenya and how to help Kenya develop more capability in the production of electricity. I said, well, can you define the problem? And she said, well, she said, 70% of Kenya is rural and only 2% of that 70% have access to electricity. So that represents an entire paralogical world that is outside the notocentric universe of the technologies that we represent and we live with. So that one of the, one of the things I would suggest in the form of collaborations would be that our world has to somehow at some point intersect with the world that's interested in sustainable development, that's interested in third world development, at one point, the third world was actually named as a project as opposed to a problem. And, um, and uh, so there is a domain of collaboration. Um, a second domain of collaboration that I'd like to mention, if you go back educationally, just a few ticks, uh, you encounter, and you still encounter today on a daily basis in, in schools and universities, if you were to ask, well, what is the centerpiece of the educational process? It was the textbook. And if you think about what a textbook was, and still is in many, many places, it was an aggregate. Textbooks are aggregators of information, narrativized contextualization. Textbooks always include in their teacher's manuals uh, pedagogical advice for the teacher, it's chunked in a certain way that allows it to be delivered in a periodized form. Okay? And if you think about it, the textbook in some ways is a microcosm of the whole educational system that spins around it as a hub. 
So we build the buildings to facilitate small groups of people that get together in time periods that are chunked so that chapters can be covered. The teachers are informed by the questions at the end of the chapters or directed by the teacher's editions on how to orchestrate the use of the content that is within the textbook. Now, what did the digital revolution do, first and foremostly? Well, it disaggregated. It extracted from the textbook information. It criticized the fact that most information was deeply limited, not primary in character, and it began to, in a sense, make the claim that the revolution would be based on the capacity to deliver primary source information to young people so that they can contend like any scholar would in, in a more limited way with real information. Well, it's our job to remember that it's one thing to disaggregate information from the textbook and to present it to students, but we have the obligation to re-engage and produce collaborations with what the textbook at one time had predetermined by its sheer form. So the kind of collaborations we need to develop are that all people who are aggregators of all that wonderful new primary source content that effectively had been, has been liberated and made present and luminous, we have to now begin to have conversations with architects. We have to talk about the nature of assessment in this new world. How do you contextualize these activities? What kind of tools for the engagement with these digital resources that we provide? So it's almost as if we disaggregated what was the complete system, but then we chose not to address the six or seven or 10 or 15 dimensions of that system that over 400 years had been developed and really were the foundation of what education became in the nation state. So the demand for collaboration there seems pretty straightforward. Uh, it's, it's really uh, that we pull together in redefining, reconceptualizing, restructuring the, the complete enterprise, not just a piece of the enterprise. It's almost unfair to provide information uh, across the board and to take no responsibility for how it's used and to assume that somehow an effective use of it will be serendipitously constructed through time by the chance causes of history. Uh, that's probably one of my strongest uh, uh, interests in education, is really trying to pay attention to all of those different dimensions and aspects of the reconstruction of the process. The, um, the next point I don't have to make again. You can, you can uh, if you choose to, go back to the web when the video is available. It's the first point I made at the opening of the conference. But I think the point of departure for new ventures that wish to be called educational have to start with the agencies of education themselves, and that the battle for educational reform has to be waged within the world of practice. It can't be done in satellite endeavors. Somehow we have to produce the collaborations that allow us to work within the institutions of practice that are processing people as students through time. And, um, that's a tremendous challenge because the process of invention almost requires that you separate yourself to some extent. So the demands for collaboration are almost uh, ones that run against the natural tendency of people who are engaged in the hothouse efforts to invent new entities and 
and new things that are related to the different dimensions of the work we do. Um, I, I was uh, very moved by Paul's uh, uh, presentation from the BBC when he talked about his travails um, at the BBC and uh, realized that, uh, on the one hand, it, it's, it's very hard to imagine what to do there, but in some very real sense, that powerful institution is not going to disappear and solutions have to be found within it in order to allow it to become and remain what it has always been in, in, in the UK. And there, I'm outside of my level of expertise that's based just on observations that I made based on what he said. I think that crossover activities, and I've taken the, well, could you hit the other one for me? Uh, is it over here? I'm not sure. Let's see if I can find it. No, I want the triangle. Yeah. Did you take over, Martin? Yeah. They don't trust me. They don't even want to use the computer. What's on this screen now, Martin? This is an effort to just at least give you a, a symbol of an activity of ours that uh, I would call a crossover activity, and I would um, okay. Yeah. The Triangle Initiative is an effort of the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning to develop media interventions that simultaneously uh, function as classroom interventions that are built on research that's taking place in the university, but the media objects themselves that are realized as a result of the process are actual community interventions. Uh, so for example, um, in the field of social work, we have developed a, a multimedia version of an intervention that was developed to prevent the communication of AIDS, particularly in couples where one member of the couple is already infected. And we took what was already a proven researched intervention that works and had a high degree of reliability and through uh, the agency of media were able to standardize the intervention so that we could lower the bar for facilitators in the field. At the same time, many of the elements of the intervention that were media-based are being used in the School of Social Work as a form of preparation for their work in the field. And um, this has turned out to be an interesting heuristic for the center. Now we have uh, about six or seven different triangle initiatives where we have research-based work where we're developing media that's an expression of that research and also an advance of that research that works both in the classroom and uh, in the community. And when I say community, it's usually the underserved populations that we're talking about. So I would say crossover activities of this type are very important and even on a more in a more circumscribed sense, uh, in the sense that it's within the university, the Digital Bridges Project that Mark Philipson is working on is an effort to take fields that are usually embedded and driven by their own jargons and don't talk to one another and build some kind of common language so that the world of libraries and the world of teaching and learning 
uh, eventually will not be conceived of as even needing a bridge. They will be conceived of as a single enterprise with a single language. Okay. Um, and uh, lastly, <laughs> there's so many computers up here at this point that I just wanted to show my slideshow again and thank you for your attention. <coughs> Martin, you can do it. Um, Frank uh, said that he thought we would say exactly the same things, but maybe using a slightly um, different vocabulary. And uh, I'm really not sure that we're going to say anything on the same planet, let alone the same universe, um, but I trust him. So um, I'm Mary Hancock, and I'm the Associate Director for Educational Technology Services at UC Berkeley. Um, for a little context, uh, both uh, Judy and Ben have introduced you to some of the work that we're doing. Um, and uh, I want to give you a little context of where we are in the institution. Uh, we are uh, on the academic side. We report into the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education. Um, and we partner with our technology group uh, on a lot of the work that we do, as well as other places across campus, um, such as the registrar and, and the library. But we think this is a very important place for us to be uh, in terms of our uh, relationship to our faculty and our students and staying very focused on teaching and learning, even though we are uh, instructional technology. So, let's see. Um, so, uh, where are we starting? This, this uh, session is we're supposed to be uh, talking about uh, next steps and uh, efficiencies um, and collaboration. So, first off, where are we starting from? UC Berkeley has about 10,000 hours of media, both video and audio. Um, this year alone, we had about 10.6 million uh, downloads. Um, and that translates into about 215 <laughs> courses and about 350 events. Um, that goes back. We have Clinton, Carter, Michael Pollan there in our events world. Um, Dan Coleman from the Open Culture blog um, claims that UC Berkeley has the most extensive collection of educational podcasts out there. Um, I don't know if this is true. Uh, he says it is, and so um, I believe him. Uh, and uh, we get countless fan mail from all over the world. And just to give you a highlight of some of this and the different areas that people are telling us that we're impacting their lives, 
um, we have people who are using this to enhance uh, their current uh, learning. We have people who are using it for lifelong learning. Um, um, we have, uh, uh, this is another example of lifelong learning, but here's perhaps a, an idea about how these business models start to grow out. Um, somebody who's watching the lecture but actually saying, well, I'm going to go buy your book now because you're stimulating my thinking and I like what you're saying. Uh, here's a correction. Somebody who's closer to the source of what this faculty member was talking about says, I like what you're saying. Thank you so much for these lectures, but uh, here's a little correction for you. So this idea of global feedback. Um, and then people who don't have the opportunity. We talk more about them, but I think that there's really a wide range of people out there who are taking advantage of this. And then there is, of course, who is not reflected here, the students uh, at UC Berkeley, which is really the impetus for why we're doing this to begin with. So as we look toward the next steps, um, these are some of the questions that we ask ourselves and we ask you. Um, how can we do more of this better? We've had a lot of feedback from students in several different reports of late that say uh, their number one um, want from us is to have more media, more podcasts, and more webcasts made available. So how can we do more of that? How can we, how can we make it better? Um, how can we make access easier for people? How can we make sure that they find us? Um, how can we take what we're doing and help other schools uh, if, if other schools want help, when we have to discover these things, we have to talk to you guys. Um, and how can we take what you're doing and uh, use that uh, and leverage that to, to help what we're doing? How can we make the content and context more meaningful? Judy talked a little bit about that. And then looking out at all of the innovation uh, that we've seen today from the institutions and from uh, the Web 2.0 world, uh, as well as uh, our uh, sort of sister organizations out there. Um, how can we leverage that innovation within our institution? Uh, we get pretty wrapped up in the concept of enterprise, and uh, I think you've heard from us the issues of scalability, sustainability, um, and uh, we take that pretty seriously, but we also take innovation and um, providing real meaningful teaching and learning seriously as well. Some of the barriers uh, that we're facing um, currently, uh, I think that both internally and externally, we're looking at a patchwork quilt solution. Right now, internally, we grew up out of a research organization. We did a great job scaling that out, um, and Obi is responsible for a lot of that wonderful work. Um, but we're at a point now, if we want to do more, we have to make it really scalable. And, uh, and I'll talk more about that later. But also, when I look out and I see, look at all of these great tools out there, um, each one has something that I want. Each one overlaps in some way. It's a patchwork quilt. How do we make this something meaningful for our users? Um, the costs of the, the vendor solutions are often um, uh, uh, unachievable for higher ed. Um, proprietary code, we can't integrate. Um, how do we get past that? Uh, we need a solid foundation. So can we build a foundation and have a flexible tool set? Where do we go for that? Um, and the other systems aren't built to play. Uh, there's also barriers around culture and people. Um, you know, people are overloaded with information, so they don't want us to make one more problem for them. How do we make it easier? Uh, they have technology overhead. They don't know what this is all about. Why is it open? We have to educate them. Um, and we have to help students 
and users, viewers, people who are learning from our materials make sense of it, which means context. How do we provide context in this world? And of course, deal with the IP, and many of you have already touched on that um, today and yesterday. So sticking with our principles, I think staying focused is really important, um, and we've done a good job of that at, at Berkeley, and um, I think that uh, we've had help from the larger uh, direction of, of uh, higher ed uh, in the recent years. So we have to make things scalable. We just know we do. So uh, how can we make things reproducible? How can we ensure quality and reproduce quality? How can we ensure that we can get things into classrooms, all classrooms? Um, how can we scale it out to the campus? And in fact, how can we scale it out to higher ed? How do we make things that don't just meet our needs? I mean, we are driven by our needs, but how do we make it so that you can use it? And how do you make something so that I can use it? And then, of course, it has to be sustainable. How can I say goodbye to Mellon and say goodbye to Hewlett and, uh, and let my campus know that we're not going to walk away when that funding leaves and say, sorry, faculty, we can't keep that going. So it has to be something. It has to be a system that we can nurture, feed, and be responsive to. And hopefully it's not just us alone. And then this is the most important thing here. It has to be something that's growable. This has to be an ecosystem, some sort of framework that we build upon. It has to be open. We have to be able to have partners. So, you know, my call uh, to action is open, open, open. And, you know, to me, it's got to be open content as much as possible within reason, um, open code, uh, and open community. Uh, and I think that it was Brian who said that it's not necessarily an either or. It's not black or white. You can't say vendors can't play in this game. Uh, you can't say there's no profit. Um, but we have to find the, where are those open gateways where we can talk to each other across the board. So why open? Um, because, well, let me stop here. Let me, let me say in full disclosure that uh, I am uh, also on the Sakai Foundation board, and I've been on the board for three years. Uh, very Six months into the project, uh, I joined. Um, I'm also the co-PI on another uh, community source project called Fluid. Um, so you kind of know where I'm coming from in this. Um, so with open, I think that you have to give a lot. It's not free, um, but you get more than a lot. And I think we're starting to see the fruits of this in some of the community source efforts and definitely in the open source efforts like Apache that, that have been out there and have, are starting to mature. Um, and then uh, this is probably the one value statement I'll make, which is that I think open content deserves open systems. It uh, is going to create some, an ecosystem that um, we can really start to see this content become a two-way or three-way, multi-way street um, rather than something where it gets caught in its little silo. I think the archivists here all talked about their problems around those silos, and we need to break down those silos. Um, and then open community. I think open community builds better processes. I think it creates a better experience, and I think it provides more opportunity. Um, as long as we all live in our little institutions and our organizations, um, we can't learn from each other. Our developers can't learn from each other, and um, we, uh, we don't have that, uh, that opportunity to, to scale up what we're doing and expand our thinking. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time convincing you about open content. I think you know why, uh, why it's a good thing to do. I think thinking about it from the student's perspective, from the learner's perspective, and then from the faculty perspective, some things just about the fact that there is a lot of content and the fact that when things are open, we can find it, if we can find it, um, that engaging with more content, and then especially with the, the, the new community and collaboration tools, by engaging with more people, 
Um, we're going to uh, we're going to extend our uh, expand extend our knowledge um, even farther and innovate faster. I think the the challenges there are we've got a lot of content out there and uh, knowledge doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. So how do we provide the right context for students and for people who are learners? Um, how do we uh, harvest things across these different partners? Um, and then how do we uh, really uh, educate and advocate for this um, to the highest levels of our administrations, um, down to uh, our, our faculty and students and people who are contributing their content back? And, and I do mean students because students are developing this content as well, often within an authenticated environment. But I think we're going to start seeing that break out. Or in a completely informal environment like YouTube. And then how does that come back in and can that enhance our teaching and learning? Um, <clears throat> open source. Um, the open source benefits that I've seen um, uh, across the Sakai community are huge. Uh, I think that with, your, with the people in-house, if you're thinking like an administrator, um, uh, you can leverage the skills of people uh, across the community. You can help them to mentor your own staff, and then your staff can grow and by mentoring <laughs> others. Uh, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, you learn more by actually seeing the workings of things. Uh, you change your mind sometimes. And then by sharing common frameworks, I think we can actually build uncommon applications. Um, I think as long as we're reinventing the frameworks every time, we're, we're going to sit there and we're never really going to touch people and we're really not going to make a difference. So let's get the framework out and then work on the applications, work on the things that are really going to touch people. And that's why we're spending so much time working around this framework, building the right foundation, being part of Fluid, being part of Sakai, so that then we can come up and we can really impact lives. Um, you can also share support and costs. That's a big issue. Uh, and there are now successful business models building around this. So that's that issue of we're breaking down barriers between uh, the commercial world and, uh, and the world of higher ed. Um, so built to, to open frameworks. Um, here's my really pretty architectural diagram. That was a joke. There's no architecture involved here at all. This is trying to show a little bit of somewhat of the, the, the uh, creative chaos that can happen in a, a community source, but also uh, the, the opportunity. So you can see um, kind of over here all of um, these different tool sets that are being built into the Sakai uh, collaboration and learning environment as we speak. Those little olive arrows are showing all those services, those tools talking to each other. So as we start to work on building uh, our re-architected uh, systems app into that world um, and then starting to come down. So a systems app is really in a way for us, right? It's the architecture. It's what allows us to systematize and automate a lot of the work that we're doing. And then maybe if you adopt Sakai and you want to do this, you can use that. A lot of workflow engines, uh, scheduling engines, things like that. And then on top of that, we start to come out and touch the customer a lot more uh, in ways that they see, webcast content management, webcast learning tools, and thinking about what those interactions are. Instead of reinventing the wheel around how you might um, study with something, well, we already have a wiki. So how do we build in those interactions inside of that environment? The students are already in that context. The faculty are already in that context. Let's make their lives easier. And then we've got our dotted line and all of these great things that are going on out there. We've started to you know, partner with Google and with Apple. They're really going to help us along the way in a lot of ways. We touch more people because of those partnerships. Now the question to us is, 
look at all of these things, how can we leverage what they have done? Can we? We don't know. We don't know. But that's a big question. So the whole world of interoperability is, uh, is on our mind a lot. Um, so in terms of open community, there's more and more of this. Um, in a way, you know, I, I went out and I got all of these different logos. Really, it is one community. Um, you know, Sakai sort of started along as a community source. Kowali came along and learned from what we were doing. Fluid is now learning from what both those organizations are doing. Um, we're seeing more and more overlap between those and the open courseware uh, community, and OSP obviously is on top of that. Um, so I think that what, what we're really um, uh, trying to do in this area is say that when you come together around a meaningful practice, you can make a meaningful community. As long as we're just out there saying, oh, yeah, you're doing something cool, but I can't really touch that, and I'm doing something really cool, but you can't touch what I'm doing, um, we can't have a meaningful relationship except to say if this, is, this is an idea. If we come together around meaningful practice, then we can start to make impact happen. So some of the next steps, um, you'll see my four, uh, my four uh, top bullets there, alignment. Um, so uh, this is looking at alignment uh, across the, the organization, the institution that you're in. I wanted to show a quick video of something that just hit the press. Um, so I'm going to switch to this that uh, uh, came out from ABC. Am I switched? Okay. Um, and just to show uh, what, what I sort of consider alignment with the administration, making sure that they're there supporting this. Now, we started really in a grassroots way with um, a baseline of administrative support, and I think we've grown up to a place where they really get it. In fact, to the point that they don't question. But sometimes we come to them and we say, well, we want to we do Creative Commons. We go through all the law stuff, and of course you have to talk to the attorneys, and it's um, a little bit of a pain around that, and it takes a long time. But when we go to the administration, they kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah okay, yeah, 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 just, just bring that over to us. We'll, we'll sign that. Um, you know, we want to join the Open Courseware Consortium. There's, you know, meaning behind this collaboration. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So, um, but it took a while, it took a while. So I'm going to well, play this. is part of their mission. Deep at our core, deep in our bones, is the sense that we are an institution responsible to the people, and giving back to society is what we're about. Of course, what you don't get in the free Internet lectures is personal interaction with a professor or college credits for taking the class. What you do get is a chance to learn from experts who are at the top of their field. And I think this is the, the future of the world, for people to be educated, to know what is true and what isn't, so that they wind up putting their energy on those things that are important. Ian Burke. So that was, that was our vice provost for undergraduate education and then one of our, our, uh, our faculty who has been doing this for a while. He gets tons of fan letters, and he's quite an evangelist. And we started to target faculty to really um, be spokespeople for us. And what we find is that they have incredible passion for it. Um, and as we start to think about expanding, we want to tap them more to send that message out to more of our faculty so that they can take advantage of this. Um, so uh, alignment, tearing down institutional boundaries, libraries, um, other parts of the organization so that you can work in a matrixed way. You don't have to re you know, do it all yourself. We have a lot under the same roof, but um, we uh, rely heavily on our partners. And having your partners believe in your mission is very important also. Um, and then also, the, the, I think playing nice with others um, uh, while embracing a networked environment is kind of a, a very important thing, 
right? We don't have to own everything. It doesn't all have to be this monolithic enterprise. Um, so let's figure out how to be in a networked environment. Um, and there's a lot of technical ways of, of working on that or architectural ways, but um, I think it's also a good uh, principle. Um, so I think ways that we can uh, uh, really work together is, is look for ways of funding the greater good. Um, and some of that is investing from our institutions at the foundational level and looking for funders to help us uh, uh, really start to push things on the innovation, teaching, and learning side. Um, helping fund collaboration costs. Collaboration is expensive. Um, helping, helping us with documentation so we can share. That's always a big cost uh, to community source. And then uh, do some implementation mentoring. How are you doing this? How are we doing this? And actually getting out to the, each institution and helping you through that. And that's something that community source has been especially good at. So I'll end there. Thanks. So I'm just going to take five minutes because I'm much more interested in hearing what these next guys are going to say than what I'm going to say um, at the last panel of the day. I just um, wanted to, 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 to mention that um, you know, recognizing that um, video production facilities, moving image assets, producer talents, video editing tools, and uh, archiving and preservation expertise and sites are, um, are in so many disparate locations, it might be interesting to think of um, like a collaborate, some kind of, yeah, that's it, a collaboration um, model. And recently I went to see NFL Films, and this is the most amazing facility um, around. Imagine if one of these existed for education. Um, you can, oh, sorry. I didn't realize you'd be out We can turn that off. But um, the, pr the production uh, facilities for video, uh, here, it's, it's kind of a one-stop shop. You can uh, do extraordinary things with their stages. You can uh, convert uh, a 16 millimeter film and other formats. The post-production is all there. Other creative services, etc. Um, and I just think, I just imagine if there were some kind of distributed education video studio. Unforgettable images, raw emotion, epic struggles. I mean, that's pretty much my past year at Columbia. It's, it's a, I can, I can see, I can, I can just see that's kind of the, you know, educational experience. And, and maybe there is a way to, um, to kind of create some kind of distributed studio because production facilities are everywhere and all this expertise is there. It might be possible to link across institutions beyond universities, maybe including public broadcasters and museums and uh, also with companies like Google, Juiced, Microsoft, 
uh, Apple and Amazon and, and others. So <clears throat> that's the only point I wanted to make. Um, and we can take a few questions now, and I, while we do so, maybe invite our next panel. Any questions for Frank or Mara or me? Is it okay to clap for our own panel?